Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today, I'm so happy to say this, by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Hey, everybody. Back in the hot seat. Hey, there he is. Hey, Blake, it's been a while since you and I have sat down together to actually record a podcast, but it's okay. We're here. We're back. I think it's been months since we've actually done a podcast together. We've just had like an interchange of either not doing it or just a bunch of different people coming in and out. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, before we get into things, we do have a lot of news to talk to about today. We're going to talk about what the FAA chief has to say about the 737 MAX crashes. We're going to be talking about robots joining the workforce at Stanford Hospital. And we got some uh, ways that they're going to hack your in-home personal assistance. I'm being very careful with the language there as to not set off everybody's personal devices. Uh, by shining lasers at them, very careful with the language there as to not set off everybody's personal devices uh, by shining lasers at them and this 14 year old uh, schooled you all on how to solve blind spots Um, but first Blake we're back we are back absolutely Uh, thank goodness it's been a long time before we uh, before we actually get into the banter and actually check in with each other I do want to let everybody know um, we are now as like a programming note we are now kind of changing the drop date to Thursday evenings slash Friday morning, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, This, I think, is just going to work better for Blake and my schedules. You may have noticed a a kind of a lapse in uh, consistency over the last couple months, and that's just because being a new parent, uh, things get busy, and Blake's busy, and so our schedules just haven't 100% lined up. And so we are thinking that Thursday nights might be a little bit easier for us to actually sit down and get you the content that you deserve. So be looking uh, at your feeds every Thursday night for more Human Factors content. With that being said, I do want to tease one other project that Blake and I have in the works. We did have a conversation. Uh, I won't say with who, I won't say about what, but... um, Let's just say there might be some news around the corner. Uh, that's that's all I'm going to say about that, but I wanted to give you all a little tease for hanging out with us and sticking with us through kind of this this weird transitional period where, uh, uh, you know, maybe the audio quality wasn't great because we moved out of a studio and we were recording on what we could. Uh, hopefully the audio quality tonight is great. Uh, I think it should be. And uh, like I said, we got we got a project in the works, so there's a lot to look forward to. Uh, I always feel like we're always coming back and, and we're going to slowly rebuild and we're going to get we're going to get the video feedback for you guys just takes time. We're always coming back and, and we're going to slowly rebuild and we're going to get we're going to get the video feedback for you guys just takes time. Uh, so stick with us. Growing pains. We really appreciate you all kind of sticking with us through it. Uh, but we're going to make it work. And uh, now with those programming notes out of the way, Blake. How the hell are you, buddy? Oh, man. I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> I can't even imagine like how your life has changed over the past couple of just months, I guess. It feels like it's been forever since we've done the podcast, and then it was like all of a sudden you were back at work. Uh, so things are good, though, on my end, for sure. Um, I'm, I am probably, the audience are probably much more interested in hearing about what it's like being a new dad and kind of all the awesome stuff you've been experiencing. Yeah, I kind of talked about it last week with Svee, but I can I can do a little recap for you because uh, you might have different points that he didn't point out. But um, the time dilation that occurs like during the first month, like, OK, so I took off a month. Uh, happy to talk about it again. But, man, the, the time dilation thing is really real. So, like, time is a construct. Absolutely. Because uh, it, it made me have like these flashbacks talking back to Peter Hancock last, uh, last year at HFES. Uh, because you know, it's, it's like one day I would look at the clock and it's like 10 PM and it didn't matter. Right. Like the next day I look at the clock, it's 4 AM and it didn't matter. And it's 2 PM. It didn't matter. Cause we were all just kind of getting in the sink of making sure baby got what he needed. Um, and really, the only thing I would do is kind of like survey the calendar every now and then and be like, what day is it? Okay, it's 14. I got to go back to work in like two weeks. I don't have to worry about it. 
Okay, it's like 20. All right, so it's coming up, so I'll just pay a little bit closer attention. So really, that's the only number that I was paying attention to, and it felt like this is the only way that I can describe it. It felt like a bubble. So really, that's the only number that I was paying attention to, and it felt like this is the only way that I can describe it. It felt like a bubble uh, where you go in one side, and you're not quite sure where you are until you come out the other side. Um, wow, that sounds really intense. Because I mean, you're totally right. Like the the fact that we ch- like you know shift time without on just like a whim or whatever, like for daylight savings time and stuff like that. And even if if people haven't heard the conversation with Graham or Peter Hancock, I always like to mess the two of them up. Definitely try give it a listen because it's from HFES, I guess, two years ago now. But that was one of the most intense and heady conversations about time being a construct or the arguments for and against it being a construct. But I can only imagine like if you're just checking out dates and. You know, the idea of time is kind of fluid for you because you're more focused on, you know, making sure you're taking care of your son and then making sure that, you know, Justine's getting enough sleep and all that kind of good stuff. You'd just be kind of going through the motions at that point. Yeah. um, I want to jump in here. You did mention interviews from two years back. I want to mention the interviews that we had this year. So we actually had Svee go out. And I mentioned this last week on the show. We do have those all up in our feed now for you. We have uh, interviews with Chris Wickens, Ann Bazance, Amy Pritchett, Colin Drury, and John Lee. So go check those out. I still even haven't had enough time to go through and listen to them, but they are on my list, and I'm slowly just plugging away. Uh, so, you know, it's exciting for us, too, to like actually hear this stuff because it's, it's content that we haven't consumed, yet it's on our feed. Um, so it's kind of fun. Um, Blake, I do want to talk about one other thing, though, that's going on in my world. Is this... Uh, Disney Plus launch. Oh, um, yeah. I figured this would have to come up at some point today. Yeah, so this happened this week. Um, and, you know, I, I want to talk about streaming services just in general at, at a broader level and, and kind of what it means for um, the consumer, right? So, like, right now, the consumer, right? So, like, right now, there's always been this, like, uh, this weird sort of thing where streaming services were supposed to take over um they were supposed to take over cable right like it was a viable alternative to cable and now there are so many of them out there that even bringing all of them in you are um you're almost paying the same amount for i guess more content but it's 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 interesting right because so the the day one that we bought Disney Plus and got it on our thing, like obviously I was prioritizing one thing and one thing only. Let's get that Mandalorian out of the way, so that way I don't am not spoiled. Uh, which is the same thing I'm doing coincidentally with a Star Wars video game tonight. I'm trying to get as far in the story as I can so that I am not spoiled. Uh, man, spoiler culture is real weird, and that's a whole other conversation. Maybe uh, man, spoiler culture is real weird, and that's a whole other conversation. Maybe we can go into later. But I, anyway, the 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 whole thing. Okay, so once that's out of the way, there's a million things to watch. You could go back, revisit your childhood. You could go back and see some of the classics. Um, and and you can do a lot in the app and see a lot in the app. And it's almost like choice paralysis. Where, well, where do I start? There's so much content here to consume. Uh, where do I start? And then you that's just one streaming service. You pile on another one on top of that, like Netflix or Hulu or HBO. And it starts to become so overwhelming that, it, it for me, it's almost like pick one and go with it. And that's kind of how I've been approaching it, right? It's like, well, there's a million things on the screen. There's something on my watch list. Let's just click that and go, right? There's and And... That's how Justine has been too. Like she's been home with baby. Um, she's still not back to work yet, so it's it's very much for her. Uh, just a Disney Plus paradise where she's been it like so paralyzing to look at all that choice and go, how? What do I start with? Yeah, it's getting a little nuts right now too because like Disney Plus, like there there's that with the Mandalorian. There's now Apple TV has their own thing and right, like yeah. A, They've got like a show that I really want to watch called C with Jason Momoa. There's a bunch of stuff coming out on HBO for like uh, like the Watchmen series they put together and some other ones. And it's hard to because like I like what you mentioned at the beginning. It's funny with streaming services. It was to get away from cable and get away from all the cost and like you're you're cutting the cord or whatever. But with like the amount of subscriptions that pile on like inside of Amazon Prime or in Hulu like taking away ads I mean you're definitely paying the same amount because you still have to have a cable bill too 
So it's just kind of insane the the kind of like paradigm shift and all these like separate streaming services. And now like there's so much content that I agree with you. It's kind of overload. Like there's so much to watch that sometimes I don't even know like what am I going to go watch. There's too many things on the list to watch in like each different, you know, streaming service. Yeah, this might be uh, a little bit of a deep cut, but I, uh, I feel like this is a couple years back now on the show. We actually talked about this like integration with Fitbit and cameras in your house that could discern what kind of mood you were in and it would play music based on that recommendation i'm almost wondering if you could abstract that to um to, to like tv shows and be like hey based on your mood uh we recommend these tv shows like you know if it can clearly tell that you're kind of depressed you've been sitting inside a house uh for hours on end taking care of a small child and you're like hey you need to pick me up here's you know um a netflix comedy special that is based on your ratings and like you know all that stuff it'd be great yeah it would be great if there was some kind of aggregation service on on what like whatever system that you watch all this stuff on whether it's like your playstation or for me like i watch stuff through apple tv but it'd be nice if like there was a stuff through apple tv but it'd be nice if like there was a way to just see all of the different possible content across everything that you're subscribed to or you have subscriptions for okay because- i may i may have a slight answer to that it's uh there's there's a couple different websites that do this uh, so this really only works if you access all these websites through um, a website, but uh, or I, I guess there might be an app for it. But there's um there's a website called Real Good, spelled R E E L, and uh, you can go to this and set things like uh, different shows that you want to watch. Uh, different movies that you want to watch and you go ahead and pick all the streaming services that you're a part of right so for me it's disney plus uh, i have nbc i have prime video i have hbo i have hulu i have netflix um, and it will tell me when one of these things on my watch list becomes available on one of these sources uh, likewise you can also see like what's on one of these sources uh, likewise you can also see like what's coming going leaving or I guess that is going, uh, what's new. Um, and so you can kind of see what's coming to each of your platforms uh, and kind of break it down by, you know, it, it is kind of like a search feature for everything that you got. That's pretty um, sick. Yeah, because like I, f- I feel like I forget where stuff is or like when it's when it's coming and going is something I never know. Like I'll go to watch something on Netflix and it turns out it's been three months and it's been removed. Like stuff that you typically right. watch at like Halloween or whatever, like. Yeah, and and I think this I think this website. I don't quote me on this. I'm actually on it right now. I'm trying to figure out um, whether or not this actually works. But I think if you click on an episode, okay, yes, it does bring up like a link to the actual episode in your browser or in your streaming service of choice, right? So I'm on Breaking Bad right now. If I click episode one, season one, um, then it will actually take me to the new an app where you know it almost does like a third party app launching thing where. If you click on something in this real good app, then it then goes into uh, your Netflix app and launches it from there. Um, if there's like certain launch parameters that you can enter, I'm not sure, uh, but that would be phenomenal. And um, it would be really good. If, yeah, it would be. Uh, anyway, I I see something here on yours. I mean, I could go on and talk for hours about streaming services and and uh, yeah, there's there's a couple other things that we could just get down into a rabbit hole of, but I see yours and I want to hear about your uh, little banter thing here. Oh, so this was kind of interesting yesterday. Um, so I've, I have never like contacted Amazon for anything. So I've, I didn't even know that like, you could get in touch with actual people or anything like that. So yesterday I was having a hard time like making a purchase through audible because I don't, I actually don't know how I accrue these or accrue these credits, but I have a bunch of like Audible credit, Audible because I don't, I actually don't know how I accrue these or accrue these credits. But I have a bunch of like Audible credits, and I've been, I like uh, got into getting some books on Audible because it turns out like a lot of people, like they they'll read their own book, which is interesting to me, and then they'll have kind of like a podcast format in between chapters. So there was like a, a new Malcolm Gladwell book that called Talking With Strangers that did something similar and like had, you know, excerpts from some of the research that he did and it just sounded like it would be a, an awesome experience. So I tried purchasing it both through the application and through the browser and I was getting just an error over and over and it said to just contact customer support. So I ended up going through the process of doing this 
And to not draw this out too long, what Amazon or what Audible and which is Amazon, one of Amazon's subsidiary companies, ended up doing was they put me in touch with a real person. When they did that, and because I was having an issue, they were like, oh, well, we're going to give you a, an extra. They were like, oh, well, we're going to give you a, an extra credit so you can get the book for free because you've had a lot of trouble. But will you help us out by giving us a lot more information and let us go through a, kind of an extended troubleshooting process? So what they did is they when the customer service person I talked to, she took a lot of information from me, the errors that I was seeing, the error codes, the things that it would say. She tried a bunch of things on her end and like set up automated phone calls to like after, you know, they reset the purchasing system. It would call me right back. It was the same customer service agent. And we would go through some more troubleshooting steps and whatnot. But what I found really interesting outside of just it being a great experience and kind of fun because I, I like to nerd out about how they're collecting data and things like that is they went through kind of an intensive data collection process with me of asking like, hey, do you mind looking in your app? Here's the steps to get where we want to know. But in the Audible app, can you give us the version? Can you give us a few other pieces of information? Okay, would you mind if we actually collected collected the version of your iPhone that you have right now? Because they what they've done is I guess they've they're rolling out over time very, very kind of sneakily and not like too unseamless to the public. They're rolling out the ability to actually make purchases for Audible within the application. Well, it's known now. Yeah, it's known Thanks, now. Thanks, Blake. Oh, you're so welcome. <laughs> and so what what had happened is by doing that, it changed how the purchasing software was kind of interacting on the back end between like it only coming through the you know the website versus the actual application itself. Long story short, I just found it kind of an awesome you know human factors ish process of they're collecting a lot of data to try and analyze what the real problems are at launch of a product that they're not really advertising that highly, which I think is something that. We don't see enough of anymore where because a lot of people were compl- complain about like launching a different services that you have like bugs or launching a video games. That, and it's like it's, this isn't even as good as the beta or whatever it may be. But this kind of customer stuff. And, yeah, for, and, I, and for a company like them, they don't necessarily have to do that because they they take so much money in at such a high volume. that They could get away with kind of not holding up these best practices. So it's even kind of more cool to see in that regard. Yeah, I'm curious because you are like a nerd for data and you appreciate what it means to collect that information from users uh, and how valuable that is to people on the other side of things. And I'm wondering sort of, uh, you know, I, I wonder how many people that are just normal Joe Schmoes that they contact are like, no, I don't you can't have my data. Like, I wonder how many people they go through, like what the rejection rate is for that request for more information, right? I, I would suspect it's pretty high. I'm not sure. Um, but that's interesting to think about for sure. Yeah. And I would have to say that I probably am an exception or maybe yourself might be an exception to this because like it, it was frustrating that I couldn't do something. Um, but that's interesting to think about for sure. Yeah. And I would have to say that I probably am an exception or maybe yourself might be an exception to this because like it, it was frustrating that I couldn't do something, but it's basically I'm, I'm accruing, you know, these credits for free. I'm not like dying to do this immediately. So that was kind of on their side. Um, Did they I, give you more than one credit? <laughs> um, No, they didn't. They just gave me the one, like the one extra credit for um for buying the book that I tried to buy, uh, which mm. was fine with me. Uh, but the th- I don't I don't know that most people would sit around and do what I did right because the, although it was a good experience for me part of that is because I'm kind of a nerd with this stuff like human factors is the bread yeah. and butter of what I do because I mean they did say like okay we're gonna reset the purchasing system can we set up an automated call with you in 20 minutes okay we did that and then they're like okay let's try this other thing if you don't mind because they had me go through the browser can we set up another call with you in in 10 minutes so at the end of it this was like an hour experience. Um, really a problem because i was just really loving the fact that this kind of customer service model and then like the data collection that's ultimately going to go to the developers is just so well done from like my perspective anyways the end user well you know what else is going to be an hour-long experience what is this podcast it is (laughs) all right well this is the part of the show uh this podcast it is (laughs) All right, well, this is the part of the show. Uh, let's get into the next part of the show. 
This is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. This could be anything from we got some medical in there this week, we got some transportation in there this week, uh, we got some personal in-home, you know, whatever it is. As long as it relates to the field of Human Factors, it is fair game for Mr. Arnsdorf and I to talk about. Uh, Blake, what do we got up first this week? Oh, man. So the Federal Aviation Administration is experiencing some serious heat over the approval of its Boeing 730, or the Boeing 737 MAX following two fatal crashes. So the agency's head stated that they are working to better assess how human pilots interact with increasingly automated and complex aircraft and then trying to determine it, their, the automation's role in these series of crashes. But according to reports, the two pilots that were flying the 737 Maxes were actually battling an automated before they actually crashed. Regulators, thankfully enough, ordered the airlines to stop flying the planes after the second crash. And the NTSB actually back in September reported and criticized Boeing for overestimating how pilots would react to a flurry of cockpit alerts during a malfunction as occurred on these two flights. So Steve Dickinson, the chief of the FAA, even mentioned recently at a conference in Washington, D.C. that human factors has to be considered throughout the design process, calling for a better data sharing as the FAA oversees aircraft and a more holistic approach approach versus a transactional line-item-by-line-item approach of aircraft certification. So the FAA is reviewing Boeing software changes to the 737 MAX that aim to make the system implicated in both crashes less aggressive. Boeing is also planning to feed the system with a second sensor uh, instead of the single sensor that is on board currently. In the crashes, that single sensor received an inaccurate reading and triggered the flight control system known as the flight control system known as MCAS. So, Nick, there is so much to unpack here in this one little story that it's kind of hard to know where to start. Yeah, um, let's take a break. No, I'm just yeah, kidding. <laughs> let's, let's, yeah, let's take a breath. Um, but but I think the the hard part for me, and this is just me like being a human factor scientist, is this is dealing with aviation, where human factors is one of the first places that was really well known. Still a problem. Still a problem. So I think that illuminates like the the real need for what you're hearing from this chief of the FAA um, of really trying to get this integration of a different design process into place so that stuff like this doesn't happen. But tell me your perspective a little bit. How do you feel about the impact of automation in this case? Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know. I, so I've been largely out of the loop with the 737 Max stuff. I haven't been paying as much attention as I probably should to it, probably because I've been out on obviously so serious of a problem that, you know, whenever human factors gets mentioned at the DC level. Like it's either it's, it's probably not a great thing um, because the field of human factors has always had visibility issues. However, I think that now going for like, uh, as time goes on, it's, it, there's a lot more visibility around human factors and the importance of it. um, And really putting, putting people first. uh, I mean, it, it is interesting to see the FAA, uh, chief, you know, actually bring this up to um, the industry conference in D.C. You know, this is an industry conference. This isn't like politicians, but uh, still interesting to to have him bring this issue up. Um, and so in terms of like all the uh, all the alarms and systems going on, obviously something was overlooked. I hate talking bad about any company without knowing the full story, knowing the full story. Um, obviously there's a ton of smart people over at Boeing that, that, you know, are working hard to figure things out. And it it unfortunately just sounds like something was overlooked and, and, you know, perhaps thought that the user could, um, sort of interpret all of these different alarms and systems coming in at the same time. I, I don't know. It's, it's a sad story that we had to, have two flights crash before we you know grounded all the flights but i don't know what what are your thoughts on this whole thing yeah i mean it's such a horrible thing to have to think about right because it's it's one of it's one of these instances where it's lucky that people automatically drew the connection with two flight crashes that okay there's something wrong with this aircraft type because it could have just been that 
I don't know. They could have, you know, looked past it, waited for more air, airplane crashes because it's that's a lot of people. I think it's over 300 people that ended up losing their lives in, in crashes because it's that's a lot of people. I think it's over 300 people that ended up losing their lives in these aircraft. So yeah. I'm glad that whoever is behind that kind of stuff, making those decisions, caught what they did because it's pretty amazing to think about the fact that it's like, oh, it's the aircraft type itself. That's probably the problem because it's newly, you know, been regulated and allowed to be flying. The part that stands out the most to me about this article and then going back to what the NTSB says about like, oh, there's this flurry of all these cockpit cockpit alerts. How did you guys think that this was going to be okay? I think that, again, this really – and, again, I've never worked at Boeing. Uh, I know they make great software and great hardware, so there's just – sometimes I think the process can get in the way. And I think that's what's being illuminated here by this Steve Dickinson, the chief of the FAA, talking about that the design process has to change. Because I could imagine that let's say you're designing a system and you're kind of – having it and testing it in a line by line fashion, kind of what they talk about here and here and like needing a more holistic version in a way that would make all of these alarms go off at the same time, or that would make this stuff kind of malfunction at the same time. So you would never know that, okay, in a, in flight emergency X that causes the nose to want to dip down like this particular instance, you wouldn't have known that there was this myriad of just too many things for the operator to deal with and become overwhelmed by. Um, whereas if you had maybe used a different design process or a different testing methodology, that might have been illuminated. But again, I think it is important to kind of highlight a point you made. It's hard to make these you know, ad hoc ju- judgments for people who are not part of the design process. Like I don't know... I don't know what software design looks like at Boeing. I don't know what testing looks like. Um, obviously, nobody puts this kind of stuff together to have anything accidentally happen like this. Uh, and I think it's it's unfortunately a difficult part of putting more automation in place and then not having a technology or you know a design process that facilitates you know maybe putting the aircraft through the hardest possible test and then what does it do to the operator in that kind of case. It's just kind of what happens when you're trying to develop new technology uh, really aggressively and then get it out in the open. Because aircraft are really expensive to manufacture, and then I can only imagine the software is somewhere in the same realm. Yeah. I I don't really have much more to add to this one. I think it's – I don't know. I, I always encourage folks to like kind of look on the bright side of things and, and kind of try not to judge too harshly because – if you were the person in these shoes, like it would, it would really suck. Like no one wants to put forward bad UI or bad situations for humans. And so it's like, you know, I, I, yeah, I just, we can't, we can't be too hard on the people, but it is the process I think that needs to change. So, you know, I would really, and I'm, I'm assuming Mateo will definitely listen to this at some, Mateo will definitely listen to this at some point. I would really love to see his input or hear his input either in the Slack or whatever medium he feels is necessary. Cause I, I think that he might have a little more insight into at least, you know, some of the process that goes on here because I know he's much more into aviation and the impact that human factors can have in the aviation space. So it'd be really interesting to hear like his kind of perspective on this because I think he's he's kind of a, a great SME, if you will, for these kind of stories. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I do have. I I, I do want to bring up Mateo in our next story, though. So why don't you go ahead and get into that? Let's do it. All right. So more than fifty five hundred Stanford healthcare employees who work at the new Stanford Hospital will be joined by a fleet of robots programmed to deliver linens, packages, medical supplies, and keep track of the hospital's medication inventory and count pills out for nurses to administer. So handing off repetitive and mechanical tasks to machines, over 23 delivery robots that will travel on pre-programmed repetitive and mechanical tasks to machines, over 23 delivery robots that will travel on pre-programmed routes throughout the hospital, and three pharmacy robots that will store and package medication will help prevent employee injuries, reduce medication errors, and free up staff to focus on more valuable and satisfying work of assisting clinicians and caring for their patients. So these robots will actually use lasers and GPS to create a 3D map of their surroundings and determine if they need to stop or move to get around an obstacle. So the robots convert that 3D map into a 2D image so managers and staff can remotely track them in real time. 
These robots have the capability to open doors wirelessly and to stop when they sense movement that may interfere with their path. They can also distinguish between stationary or moving obstructions within a 10-foot radius and alter their course accordingly. Nick, this is so exciting. I want to go to this hospital just to see these robots going around. You know who has been to this hospital just to see these robots going around? You know who has been to this hospital to see these robots going around? Who? That's Mr. Mateo. Are you serious? There's a picture of him in our Slack. Actually, well, I don't know if he's visited this specific hospital, but he does have a picture of him uh, with one. And uh, the name of this one that he saw, it actually has a name, and it's got some googly eyes on it with a mustache. Its name is Alfredo. Pasta That's amazing. You, are you kidding me? That is the best picture ever. What in the world? So if our listeners want to go and see uh, one of our other listeners uh, in in close proximity to one of these devices, you can go check it out on our Slack. Um, yeah, so so this is pretty cool. I always like seeing these uh, these ways to help offload some of these repetitive mechanical tasks um, and and you know put that with machines so that way the humans can really focus on the like bedside manner types of things, three D surroundings, and and even you know, using that technology to avoid obstacles like other humans or other things in the environment that it might run into. But I think the real sort of interesting thing here, to me at least, is is just that it does offload sort of these um, care healthcare professionals. Uh, it off- offsets their load by doing these repetitive tasks, so that these healthcare employees can can sort of um, you know perform uh, some of the more human-centered tasking um, instead of just, you know, delivering linens, packages, all that stuff. I'm just really excited because this is like, we, we've talked about a couple of stories where we look at the industrial impact of robots that have like a lot of this like sense and seek technology attached to them to like make sure that it's safer for operators and that nobody like gets hit by a giant metal arm that's swinging around putting cars together or whatever it may be. But this is kind of bringing the robotics concept into around putting cars together or whatever it may be. But this is kind of bringing the robotics concept into a much more mainstream system because like a hospital is it can be chaotic. Like how they keep this very very much a systems of systems running with so many different moving parts, different things when you're intaking people, getting people out, trying to get care, all those different kind of levels that there are to a hospital. And now you're adding robotics to it that are ultimately going to allow humans to do their job better or focus on the more intensive parts of dealing with other humans, whether it's a clinician or helping with patients. But I would imagine that there's got to be a little bit of a a hesitation on people's parts because you're putting a lot of robots in a place where there's there's a lot of different people wa- running around. You you've got like people that are that are sick that don't need to get hit by robots and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think it's a great uh, kind of test for this stuff. So okay, let's let's talk about that though because I don't I don't see this becoming uh, so jam packed with uh, robots that you know it becomes unmanageable. I what I see so like in the case of like maybe. Picking up linens or delivering linens, that's one robot that goes around and, like, gathers the linen basket, takes it away. Or, you know, and then in that same trip, he delivers a set of linens, and that's one trip. And then they go deliver the old ones to the thing, and it's just one robot running back and forth. And it's not on a set schedule because it doesn't, there's not really a high demand for linens unless something happens, in which case I'd imagine you could sort of reprogram the priority i'd imagine you'd also have perhaps one for a pill counting um and then has background tasks that like you know there's a prioritization prioritization of tasks here that could happen right maybe pill counting is up at the top and then uh taking inventory is just below that and then once the um once that's done maybe then it moves down to packages and then uh taking inventory is just below that and then once the um once that's done maybe then it moves down to packages and medical supplies so that way you know it kind of has this hierarchy of things that takes priority and there's only a couple around but they're multitasking droids for all intents and purposes like i i so what that being said i don't see there being too many of these maybe like two or three on a floor uh, to accommodate some of the demand, right? I 
I don't know. I, what do you think about like how many? No, there I are? mean I don't really know how big the hospital is, but it's only twenty three robots, and they're all kind of on pre-programmed routes and maybe even schedules. And it seems like there's there's some interaction with somebody that can actually monitor them. So there's not going to be that many, but there's that doesn't mean there's not a lot of people in a hospital. I mean, if there's over fifty five hundred, sure. you know, employees themselves walking around, plus however many patients you intake or two, right? Like my most recent experience at a hospital was. At a at a postpartum ward, like you know, there's there's not a whole lot going on there. It's like maybe maybe walking around a little bit, um, but not much else, you know. And and as long as it doesn't get in the way of the hospital staff, I, I don't really see too much of an issue here. Yeah, and I don't really know. It'll be great to kind of either hear about this or see how it expands across other hospitals because I would assume that like if Stanford's getting them that's probably a great place to test because it's a it's a very systematized you know design and in, in terms of like how all the different floors work and there's a lot of kind of thought behind yeah. that so it'd be great to see how this kind of stuff ends up in other hospitals and you're right I mean this is more focusing on like the robotic pharmacy aspect of it I mean that's what the focus of this article is yeah um, but nonetheless I think it's great I mean that really it's it's a leap, but I feel like seeing robots in this kind of way in a much more act with them personally, but see them, see them about. I think that's the first step before we start seeing them in a lot of different other kind of areas where we can, you know, automize stuff in grocery stores or whatever it may be. Yeah, you know who would know is Mateo. He so Mateo, please, if you wouldn't mind, go back onto the weekly stories and just kind of tell us about your experience with this because I'd love to hear about it. All right. Well, uh, we got a couple more news stories, and we'll be back to break down those right after this short break. Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in Human Factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is Human Factors Etc., we're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right, and we're back. Thank you to all of our friends over at Popular Mechanics, Ars Technica, CNBC, and Stanford for all of our news stories this week. If you want to follow along, I mentioned it earlier, you can follow us on social media or join us on our Slack for links to the original articles we do post. And by we, I mean Mateo posts them <laughs> as soon as we find them. Uh, so go check them out there. All right, we got two more stories up this week. Blake, what do we have up next? And the common theme here lasers lots of lasers all right so researchers recently discovered that personal in-home voice assistants are vulnerable to attacks that user use lasers to inject inaudible and sometimes invisible commands into the devices and serendipitously cause them to unlock doors visit websites and locate and locate unlock and start vehicles that is terrifying yeah by shining a low powered laser into these voice acts of their choice from as far away as 360 feet or 110 meters. Because voice-controlled systems don't require users to authenticate themselves, the attack can frequently be carried out without the need of a password or even a PIN. Even when the systems require authentication for certain actions, it may be feasible to brute force the PIN, since many devices don't limit the number of guesses a user can make. And among other things, light-based commands can be sent from one building to another and penetrate glass when a vulnerable device is kept near a closed window. That's so so crazy. Uh, so the attack exploits a vulnerability in microphones that use microelectrical mechanical systems by unintentionally responding to light as if it were sound. While the researchers tested only Apple, Amazon, Google Assistant, Facebook Portal, and a number of tablets and phones, the researchers believe that all devices that use MEMS microphones 
are susceptible to light command attacks. M-E-M-S microphones are susceptible to light command attacks. Who... This is somewhere between being, you know, extremely terrified and then really, really impressed by somebody's ability to think up this method of kind of hacking people's systems. Yeah, so at first at first glance, I was like, what? How? How are they using light to do this, right? And so what it is, it's a low-powered laser, um, and I, I don't know if it's, like, the frequency of the light that's allowing them to do this and, like, at what part of the device they're aiming um, I don't even know if there's video to accompany this. Uh, I, I know there's some images here, but, um, yeah, this is kind of crazy, right? Like th- it's, uh, there's a, there's a whole thing about how light commands work here on, um, on the actual article itself. So I'm quickly skimming through this. Uh, it's interesting. So yeah, yeah so- cause this is coming out like a, out of a paper as well. So there's like an entire paper written on the concept of light commands. And then so laser-based audio injection attacks voice control systems. That's like the output of one of the papers. That's intense. Okay, so I I see what it is. So the light has photons that uh, basically um, make the diaphragm on the microphone in the voice assistant oscillate. And you can give that, uh, that diaphragm the command from a beam of light. And so you can you can translate a beam of light into certain wavelength particles and uh it, you know it's all sciencey stuff but basically you can give it a command from far away and it's it's basically using light as sound and that is freaking nuts. Um but but I mean like think about the accuracy that you is required. There's a very small microphone that you have to hit from far away. Nuts. Um but but I mean like think about the accuracy that you, is required. There's a very small microphone that you have to hit from far away. Um, yeah, I mean they're they're showing this being done with like a telephoto lens attached to a laser. If anybody's kind of curious yeah. on how they were getting this like six three hundred and sixty feet or one hundred and ten meter distance, it's it's pretty serious. Because then to even go further, they're doing like a telephoto lens through a telescope to shoot a laser beam to hit a target on like a one of Amazon's talking devices. So this is this is pretty serious to have to do. But can you imagine if you were able to you know reduce the amount that you had to do this or like reduce the complexity of what you had to do in order to like send a command like this? Yeah, you have some sort of AI-powered like stabilization mes- uh, method that allows you to focus in. You know, it, it's like it's crazy, right? And just think about what this could do for uh, you know, like you could open garages, you could start people's cars, you could do for uh, you know, like you could open garages, you could start people's cars, you could Grand Theft Auto right there. Um, it's kind of crazy to me, uh, and this kind of just puts another emphasis on that whole cybersecurity thing, right? Like. Another way, I guess, that we can protect ourselves is to put these devices out of the way of any path that someone might be able to shine a light in, in you know, uh, in that area. Um, also, you know, it, it's interesting that there's no, like, pin protection um, inside the house. I get it, right? It's supposed to be a secure environment. Um, now, I wonder how far this is going to go since... You know, some of these home assistants, and we're being very careful not to say these names to not set off anybody else's. Um, but I, I wonder how far you can go when some of these voice assistants are starting to uh, develop these voice profiles and they're they're able to understand distinctions in people. Is the timbre, if you will, of this light and how, I guess with enough data, they could probably make the ma- the light match somebody's timbre or get it close enough, but... I would imagine the timbre of the light is very dry and just is kind of a command that it's listening for, right? I would, if I was to say a guess, yeah, but it's one of those things that if somebody was even able to figure out the fact that there's a hack for this, that you can do it, I would assume that you can get it enough that it, like if we're playing off a of voice recognition that you can get it close enough to somebody's voice to kind of like deep fakes if you will i know that's to like budget yeah yeah i know that's like a lot a lot a lot of that has to do with video but you can also get a lot of audio out of that so i mean i feel like there's a way to do it but at the same time i was going to ask you this what do you think is even a good you know password or authentication method for your voice other password. than yeah like a password that you would actually have to say because no password for, password's the password 
Oh, very good. <laughs> Form of two-factor authentication going on, right? Like maybe, maybe, you know, uh, these these um, these companies that develop these devices, uh, maybe they come up with some mechanism of detecting um, this this light command, but maybe it's not perfect, uh, and maybe. If it does detect something that sounds like a light command, but they're not sure, maybe they send you a two-factor authentication on your phone. Maybe it's just a pop-up, like Google does this, right? Hey, was this you? Okay, yes, that was me, and you just hit yes, and it goes. Uh, Microsoft does that, too. Um, so maybe it is just something as simple as that, like, hey, was this you? Yes, that was me. No, it's not. And then if no, it's not, then then they know they have more data that was a light command or that was a, a erroneous command that came from somewhere else. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure what the security looks like uh, because it's, I'm not quite sure what the security looks like uh, because it's, it's, it's completely unreasonable to uh, ask every owner of these devices to put them away, um, away, you know, out of, out of the way of, of, uh, a visible path. Now, I do, I can say uh, one way of combating this is just hardware. Um, if you you have like, so I have like the Google Home Mini and the uh, the Amazon Echo Mini, whatever it is. I have both of those, and those I have no idea where the microphone's at, and maybe maybe they embed it into the actual body of the thing to where there's multiple microphones picking up stuff. And in, unless you know the exact orientation of that circular puck, you don't know exactly where the microphone is. So it makes, you know, the attempt for light commands a lot less uh, plausible. So it makes, you know, the attempt for light commands a lot less uh, plausible. Uh, I think, you know, at least in this in this situation, you know exactly where the microphone's at, at least on the, on the Google Home. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know. What, what are you thinking? The one or, that I'm not sure of, because I, I agree, like the phone's going to be really easy. You know where the microphone is typically. You can kind of take a good guess at it. The one that I don't understand, and I don't know if this is attached to like being able to maybe start your car from your phone, but how are they doing this to cars? Because as far as I know, uh, I don't I don't know there's too many voice commands that my car runs or knows that's not so, attached to my actual phone. So like there's Tesla apps on oh yep that makes sense on these platforms that you say uh, device name start my car and that is literally the command that they are performing in these light uh, commands that will then instruct performing in these light uh, commands that will then instruct the device that is linked up with your Tesla to start that car. Um, and I know some other automakers have that capability as well. So uh, it's something to think about. Yeah, definitely. That's pretty insane. I mean, the fact that this is a thing is it's kind of like it's incredible again, just from like an intellect perspective. But it's it's got to be tough for people to, that develop any of this technology to have to like think about from another cybersecurity point of view. Because I think getting people to... And I don't know, you have probably a different perspective on this than I do now because you have a lot more listening devices in your home that you use and you interact with. But I feel like this kind of stuff, the more we kind of hear about it, it just adds a little bit more of a barrier to entry for people um, in, it terms could. Of, in terms of like feeling, you know, is it safe, is it secure or whatever it may be. But also like okay, for manu manufacturers, manufacturers as well, like you're trying to provide a good experience for people interacting, especially with like doctors as well. Like you're trying to provide a good experience for people interacting, especially with like the in-home voice assistants, more, more so like away from the phone aspect because it's like you're just talking out loud. There's no real or I at least don't know the interplay that would go on for like authentication if there was if it was unsure that it was actually you or whatever so it's like the the experience gets a little tougher to create like a seamless type of thing with this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know how much of a barrier to entry it it causes. I think the types of people who want these devices already have these, the types of people who are going to be dubious of them um also won't have get them. them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or they have them because their their children or grandchildren have given to given them to them as gifts. Actually, funny enough, you want to know something funny is that there is a lawsuit going around right now that uh, because of this always listening stuff with some of these 
in-home assistance right now that the setup of this device uh, you get some sort of class action lawsuit money and so my parents were like yeah we fit all those buckets you set this thing up for us we weren't involved in it uh i mean they they keep up with technology but like you know they, they they're getting money because i set it up for them so that's great that's hilarious <laughs> oh the loopholes never ending that's great yeah um you mentioned cars earlier and starting cars but you know what really grinds my gear with cars what really grinds your gears uh blind spots oh yeah blind spots those are awful <laughs> Well, why don't you get into the last story there? All right. So over 840,000 of the car crashes that occur on U.S. roadways each year can be traced back to a problem area all drivers can relate to. So the blind spot caused by the A-frame of the car's structure. Well, Alania Gazer, Gasler? Alania Gasler. Elena Gasler. Oh, there we go. Uh, 14 of pencil frame of the car's structure. Well, Alania Gazer, Gasler? Alania Gasler. Elena Gasler. Oh, there we go. Uh, 14 of Pennsylvania has designed a technology that makes the A-frame pillars of a car see-through by using projectors that cast images of what's really behind them onto their surfaces. So it's not just a fix for the rear blind spots, but you can also, but also a solution for the front. So if a pedestrian is crossing the street in front of you, front of your vehicle, for example. Her invention makes it so that you can actually see live footage of the person crossing the street through the A-frame with cameras, making them sort of ghost pillars, if you will, as she told Popular Mechanics. So the projector is part of an initial prototype to prove out her concept, and the next iteration of her blind spot invention will utilize liquid crystal display or LCD monitors that are the same quality used in televisions. Says she will says this will allow the brightness to change according to the weather and the time of day. That's pretty dope that somebody that's fourteen just solved a problem that's probably been plaguing people since cars were cars. It's just school, y'all. I mean like look, like this is something, at least initially, that you'll find on luxury vehicles, but if the safety implications are are so great uh that you know, 840,000, that's no small number to block at, right? If if this becomes a viable solution and screens are becoming more and more affordable, right? Like we have the technology, we can just use old cell phone screens and put them up on these pillars. Like that's a that's a huge improvement. Um, and it's, it's kind of baffling to me that no one came up with this before. Uh, she did patent this. So that's that's something that we can all rest easy with. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just thought this was a kind of a clever solution, um, to so sweet. Cause I, I don't know. I could see like somebody picking this up and you're going to see it in every car in like five, 10 years. Yeah. Every new car at least. Yeah. Um, oh, could you imagine that? Like if she was selling kits that you could actually put this in your own car? Yeah. And I don't, I don't see that as very far off. If you just imagine like a, like a camera and a projector combo, and some sort of power, right? Like, it would be ugly, but it would go around the, like, top rim of your car. Maybe you could hide it. I don't know. Uh, you can hide dash cam cables pretty well. Um, so, like, you know, I, I don't know. I can I can maybe see it. Um, the trick is to get the, like, outside cameras in a place that's going to be consistent. You might have to go and get this installed if you want it aftermarket but i do see this as being built in especially with cameras being more and more commonplace in cars these days i i just can't see something like this not becoming sort of the standard oh yeah becoming sort of the standard oh yeah i mean especially if it because this is so much over and beyond just like indicating that something's in your blind spot like being able to actually see it and not have too many mistakes based off of whatever cameras are seeing and sensing or the latency that comes with that kind of stuff this this is gonna be awesome. Yeah. All right. That was a short one, but uh, you know what time it is, Blake? What time is it? Dave? It came from. It came from. That's right. It came from Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring you, yes, you, topics, the community. That's you that you're talking about. That's everything. That's that's all of us. We are all part of this human factors community. We are all here to talk about topics that we the community are talking about in this community together all of us the community the community 
Oh, man. I what love about the community? Around. Okay. Uh, so, okay, Blake, I think we got time for a couple of these. Let's do two. Um, do you? Would you like to do, and I know I didn't put as much detail in these, but you can kind of see what the titles are. Uh, do you want to do, which which ones do you want to do? Uh, let's see here. Let's, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and start one here. Do I, it. Just pick uh, one. I'm going to start with this last one here, uh, at least on our end. This is uh, from the user experience. This is uh, from the user experience subreddit by user Stay X Curious. Uh, they go on to write, <laughs> okay, Blake. <laughs> they go on to write, is it standard to require decks, meaning slide decks or briefs, for job applications and interviews now? Uh, they go on to write, I haven't been in the job market for two and a half years, but is it expected that designers or human factors practitioners have decks or slide decks or briefs for their interviews and applications now versus just a portfolio website? I seem to notice this, notice this more, but it wasn't a thing before. Um, Blake. Do you have a deck? I have a deck. I, I got decks. Yeah, no, I don't have a deck on me, but I would assume, I don't know. This is not something that I would... Uh, okay, if I was in like the search job land or whatever, I would probably just expect this. Have one because you would I, have one. Yeah, because it just depends on probably the job position you're looking for, and yeah, it might not probably the job position you're looking for, and yeah, it might not be as commonplace for like a UX designer, but definitely for a human factors practitioner, it seems commonplace that you'll go and present work you've done, talk a little bit about process, kind of how what your what your role in stuff was. And I could imagine that being the same for any kind of UX person, especially if you're looking for an upper management role, like, you know, senior director or whatever it may be. Just something to, because they're not really just assessing like, oh, can you make designs on the fly or does your portfolio look really great? I mean, they want to know what you're like as a person and how you solve problems and how you communicate. So it, and sometimes you can't just get that from an interview or you don't get enough people in the room that can like get a opinion of you or get a sense of you from just interviewing with a couple people. So I think it's more commonplace than it used to be. Um, yeah. It has been in any of the companies that I've like applied jobs for or gone through the interview process with. Um, it's there. You know what? Just, just on the safe side, make or gone through the interview process with. Um, it's there. You know what? Just, just on the safe side, make one and yeah, do why your not? best with it. Why not? Okay. I'm going to get onto another one here. This one is by user Anxious Betty. Anxious on Betty. On Coming the user at you live. Experience subreddit. Uh, do you guys feel that the UX, UI slash human factors field has become oversaturated? Uh, I've been working with UX and UI design since 2016 in some capacity, blah, blah, blah. There's your backstory. I can't help but feel that the field has become oversaturated. I come from an IT slash analytical background, and I feel like there's a lot more job security and flexibility in the more technical side of things. There are so many great portfolios and human factors designers out there that I feel like it's tough to stand out. In addition, companies still don't know what UX, UI slash human factors design really is, and there are so many challenges that come with this role. Uh, anyway, this is uh, UX, UI, HF people. Do you think that's it's uh, it's becoming oversaturated? Is it already there? Is it not there yet? Well, what anxious, Betty, you might have something to be anxious about. Um, I don't know. So I know you inserted human factors in there, and I'm going to pull it out because I think that it's not going to fall as is fall into the, what I'm about to say as much, but I'll leave you to kind of comment further on that. Okay. I think right. from a UX and UI standpoint, like, or people that get hired as UX UI and by anybody that's applying for that job, you should be very careful about what you're walking into. Cause if you don't think they, if you think they're going to know what you're supposed to do, they're not. If you're applying for a UX UI job, usually those are very separate and they end up being two different things, but that's not the point of this question. So I think it can be very, very saturated in terms of where you're looking. Um, like let's say if you're looking in San Francisco where tech is really, really high and there's a lot of people that want to hire UX designers and UI, you know, tech is really, really high and there's a lot of people that want to hire UX designers and UI, you know, designers as well, or UX practitioners in general, you'll have a potential for a lot of openings. But if you look at the jobs that are out there, a lot of it is mid to senior level. Um, so for anybody that's coming in the ground level, yes, you need to be careful of the saturation of the market for where you're applying. Uh, can also 
take into account the fact that they're just like coding boot camps were really, really popular probably a couple of years ago. UX boot camps have become really commonplace, like whether it's General Assembly or Design Lab where I work for, there is a lot of them and they do have a lot of students that end up out in the workforce, like trying to find jobs and stuff. So it's one of those things that you have to kind of look at where you want to apply and, and like maybe the region. And that might help you kind of see what the market looks like and what people are looking for to help you know, like how saturated the market is. If you know, like how saturated the market is. Um, but for Nick, from like a human factors perspective, I mean, what do you think? Do you feel like the the job market is saturated for human factors or I guess like UX yeah. research people? Separating the two, I don't think so. I think UX and UI is a very sexy term that a lot of companies throw on as kind of an afterthought to say, yeah, we're doing that. Um, I think, at least from my experience, human factors isn't that saturated. There's a lot of uh, folks that kind of stay with their companies for a very long time. Um at least from my experience, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. Probably not for human factors, but for design, yes. For UI, UX, yes. Um, I don't know what your opinion on this question is, Nick, but I think you they might be, unfortunately, asking the wrong question. I mean, if if the market's saturated, great. But like, I think you'd really the real should, question is how do you stand out? Yeah, how do you you know stand on top or what what's gonna make really the real should, question is how do you stand out? Yeah, how do you you know stand on top or what what's gonna make you get the job over somebody else or like what do you do if you don't get a, get the job that you wanted? Do you just keep moving on? Do you move into a different field? I think those are more important questions than whether the markets are saturated. Well, let's discuss them. What do you do? What do you do if uh, how do how do you stand out, Blake? What do you do? Tell oh. us your trade secrets. Yeah, because I stand out so much. Um, you start a podcast. Yeah, you start a podcast. That's true. <laughs> I think a portfolio is a good thing, but ultimately I'm one of those people that believes in marketing or not marketing. Marketing is good and you can develop your own kind of like self-brand really easily, especially in 2019. But I think just the networking aspect of things is really going to pull you really far and being able to volunteer your time and do stuff for free. That's going to get you pretty far in like looking for a job and building credibility, Um, doing something like getting a position in, you know, an HFES or an HFES chapter or, you know, a a design chapter in your local community, whatever it may be to kind of get your name out there and build you kind of, it was a credible person. Like, yeah, they show up to events, they help out, they have like good insights for, you know, different design ideas. And also just um, like being able to just hop in and talk with people. I think that has a really big impact on like how you're going to get hired. There, There was somebody I was recently talking to about, like who really was had illuminated the fact that like, yeah, no matter if it's human factors, if it's research, if it's design skills, those are great. But what's going to make you stand out is those soft skills. So being able to talk to people, how you explain process, how you explain design, design decisions or decision making in general, um, and how you can relate to other people, that's going to help you get really far. But enough rambling for me, Nick, what's going to get these people a job? Exactly what you said. I, I mean, I, it, I second everything that you said, and it, it really is just the networking, and I, I think we can just drill that into everybody's heads. It's the people that you know that get you the job, um, and so the more people you know, the higher likelihood that you can actually get a position. Um, you know, it all kind of lines up with openings and all that stuff, but uh, at least if you are if you kind of ping someone on LinkedIn and go, hey, you know, like, hey, I'm looking for work. If you know of anything, let me know, and they're like, oh, yeah, no, I I know your work. I know you're good for looking for work. If you know of anything, let me know. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, I, I know your work. I know you're good for it. Um, we got an opening. You know, it's it's a lot of that that goes on. So just kind of increase your uh, circle of influence by going to conferences, by going to events, by making yourself known, by getting involved in committees and subcommittees in these organizations. Uh, do something. Also, um, one last little tidbit here. Like, if you let's say you can't say you live in a small town, there's not a lot of tech, and you're looking to get out, or whatever the case may be, you can't do a lot of this other stuff. If you have an internet connection and you have social media profiles, there's a chance, there's a, probably a high likelihood that you're into something, whether it's fitness, whether it's tech, whatever. And you may be able to find people through Instagram, through Twitter, through going on Reddit, through jumping in the Human Factors Cast Slack, people that need help designing 
websites or help understanding how to solve a problem with different users like that use the internet to your advantage like exploit the fact that you are in connection with potentially you know thousands of different people and even though like you you'll you can run into a lot of people saying no or that they don't need help. You may run into somebody that says like, yeah, give me your insights or can you put some mock-ups together for me or whatever it may be. And that can turn into something great. I absolutely agree. All right, Blake, let's get out of here. That's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the stories this week. Uh, You can always, whatever it may be. And that can turn into something great. I absolutely agree. All right, Blake, let's get out of here. That's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the stories this week. Uh, you can always join us on our on our Slack for any discussion or follow us on any of our social media channels at uh, A-Tractor Podcast. If you want to email us, we elevate those higher than our Reddit. So if you want to do that, you can reach us at show at humanfactorscast.com. If you like what you hear want to support the show, you can leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice or consider supporting us on Patreon. Um, and of course you can always reach us at our home on the web humanfactorscast.com I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnstorff for hanging out with me being on the show today where can our listeners go and find you if they don't if they want to talk about all their streaming options if you want to talk about all your streaming options you guys can always find me in the Human Factors Cast Slack at at Blake Arnstorff I think um, but you can also find me Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.